Welcome to Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, recording from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you're a returning listener, thanks for coming back. Tales has been downloaded in over 250 cities, spanning the globe over five continents. So I thank everybody around the world for listening, and I hope you stay tuned for more. I like to call this mini-episode, Buzz on the Tea. And for me, it covers things that I'm hearing on the first tee over the last week or so. It's kind of like current events for golfers. And as I'm meeting golfers on the first tee, I tend to hear their conversations, whether they're, they're interacting with me or with each other, because I'm standing right next to them. And as I'm listening to Buzz on the Tee this week, I like to break it down by generational groups, because most of the groups, while they might be talking about some things that are the same, they clearly have different things on their mind. As I start meeting more boomers recently, what I'm finding is the number one topic for boomers on the T is where does everybody stand with the vaccine? And it is just so interesting that some of the senior golfers that I've started both at Charleston National and at Rivertown are all talking with enthusiasm about the fact that, hey, they just got their first or their second dose. And what that does for a lot of them is free them up to do things that they haven't done in a year. I know seniors that have not left their house and gone out to eat dinner, have not done things in public for a year. So for them, there is this feeling of freedom again, you know, the, that entitled spirit that they have in the United States to go out and do things when they want to, how they want to. And so they're doing it again. So they're really excited. Fifty-seven years or more having to deal with bomb shelter drills in early childhood, a country divided with Vietnam, Watergate, and the first of many deceptions sold to us by people we choose to lead us, the awareness of an emerging and strengthening underserved population with civil rights and other causes, a presidential assassination, the fall of the Berlin Wall, that reunited East and West Germany and signaled to the world that communism as a growing weed was starting to weaken. And then 9-11 and the downing of the Twin Towers. And I bet you could speak to any boomer and they could tell you exactly where they were when they got the news that the first or the second tower was hit by a plane. And I'm going to be telling a story in the upcoming weeks that Josh will share about his experience going on a, a tour with Her Majesty Sarah, Duchess of York, where they start off on September 9th, flying into New York City, the 10th doing promotional activity, and the morning of the 11th, they're in Times Square filming at the Today Show, and they're supposed to be going down to the 102nd floor, the Canner Fitzgerald offices, to do some more promotional work. But because 
of Sarah's mismanagement of time. And apparently this is something that's plagued her, but is actually saved her in her life. She got on to signing autographs and talking to people, finally got in the limo, started heading downtown and were immediately stopped and they had to go back up uh, to, to Mid-City and then actually had to escape to Connecticut. I mean, I could go on and on as anybody in any generation could do. The Iraq and the Afghanistan wars in the aftermath, the re-isolation and nationalism of political campaigns to build philosophical and physical walls protecting us from the outside. And I'm sure anybody listening to this could say, hey, Rich, you've missed like a hundred things that were impactful that people remember. Yeah, my only point is that this generation of boomers has have shoveled a lot of shit. So give them some respect, will ya? The two most common things I hear on the T for both Gen Xers and Millennials are number one, getting back on the road, and number two, Zoom fatigue. So a lot of these groups, have, like myself, haven't been on the road. I used to travel a lot. It's just part of my DNA. When I worked, I was in sales and marketing. I'd be on the road a lot. Um, even after I started to semi-retire, I still really enjoy travel. There were places I hadn't been to and places that I really liked that I wanted to go back to. So that was kind of part of, of what I like to do. Well, I haven't done that in a year and three months. So I certainly miss it. But a lot of them are talking about some of the challenges in getting back on the road, particularly with air travel. And, the, the, you know, if they're on long flights, having to keep their mask on the whole time and everybody tries to sneak it off to breathe um, a little bit. But there are, there are people, curmudgeons on the plane that, that are like the mask police that are looking to make sure that everybody else is doing what they're supposed to do as well. So there are some challenges that I found in, you know, getting back on the road and then Zoom fatigue. I get it. I mean, I can't imagine spending hours a day on these Zoom calls. And it's like with all new technology, it just seems like there are some people that are slow to get it. So as part of the Zoom call, you still have people that are challenged with the technology or just don't understand protocol of being on a meeting with other people, like having kids, dogs, you know, whatever is going on in the background. And I know half the people aren't wearing pants just for the joke of it, but I really don't care about that. Uh, I had a Zoom call back in January. We had uh, my mom turn 92 and one of my cousins uh, had a great idea that let's have another Zoom call with uh, with Harriet so that she could see all her relatives. She has not been out of her apartment and she just got her second vaccine uh, like three weeks ago. So she has been sequestered in her apartment quarantining for over a year and a month. And she doesn't go out to restaurants, grocery store, anything like that. So I know she's got her freedom, but she wanted to see her relatives. And a lot of her relatives could not travel down there uh, to see her because we're not vaccinated. So it was fun. But quite frankly, you know, my mom is not technically savvy. 
So I would say almost half the call, it's really about, mom, don't touch that button. Mom, don't turn that. Mom, you know, she'll all of a sudden she'll go off screen and she keeps talking. You can't see her. So certainly Zoom fatigue has to be hitting everybody. I'm sure everybody wants to get back to whatever the soon normal is. But according to the Wall Street Journal, this new normal is not going to be everybody going back to cities and going back to offices. There's going to be some kind of hybrid. I look forward to seeing that. Actually, there's a third topic that's buzzing with the millennials, and that's the NCAA basketball March Madness. With the pandemic, the dance has taken on a completely new fanless look. Without the fans, particularly the low-seeded team's fans, the games take on a scrimmage-like energy that benefits the underdogs. Did you know that the 2021 tournament leading up to the Sweet 16 set the record for the highest aggregate seed count in the history of the sport. That means more higher-seeded teams won over lower-seeded teams, meaning a hell of a lot more upsets. Lower-seeded teams were going down more than hookers on 42nd Street in the 70s. And the team everybody's buzzing about is Oral Roberts, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who came into the dance 16 and 10. Then they beat the number two seed team, Ohio State. And then they go on to beat the number seven seed team, Florida. And if those stats are not good for you, well, just listen to Stephen A. Smith. I can't believe I'm saying this because my brother, uh, Galen Gordon, that used to work here, is now at ABC. As a senior vice president, congratulations to him. Where did he graduate yeah, from, Max? Congrats to Oral him. Roberts. He graduated from Oral Roberts. And the what second and the second that they won, first they beat Ohio State. And I'm looking for the brother because we supposed to go out to dinner. And he's like, What about Oral Roberts? And then last night they beat Florida and he's like this, yo. What about Oral Roberts? So, again, Galen Gordon, congratulations. Oral I, I said Oral Roberts. He said Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts. Say it faster. Oral Roberts. I don't know how to pronounce the damn name. Oral Roberts, okay? In Tulsa, Oklahoma, I believe. Look, this brother, what is this, Obano, uh, Abano or Obanar or whatever? This brother's averaging 29 points a game. He dropped 28 last night. He was shooting from all over the place. Admiss, I mean, he dropped 26. These brothers can play. And then the last group, one of my favorite groups, the Gen Z. These kids, you know, these are like the kids that are up to 24 years old. These kids just want to get out of the house. Some have gone back to school. And those that haven't are still learning from home and they have their parents at home and they just want to get the hell out of the house. And golf has been a great place for them to go to get away from their parents and just get out for four or five hours before they go back into their learning prison. So those were some of the common themes inside of each generation. But there were a few common things that crossed generations. And the number one thing this week was Bryson DeChambeau. 
If you want it, come and get it. I'm about to let loose suddenly. She and quite frankly, I'm hearing positives. I'm hearing negatives. You know, the positives are obviously this guy can dominate a golf course. And he is fun to watch. When he gets up to a hole like at Bay Hill this last weekend, I think it was the sixth hole. He's got to hit over what looks like an ocean between where he's standing and this think of this semicircle of a lake where there's land on the right and directly if you took a straight line between him and the green there has to be like 320 330 yards it's a par 5 so if you and I were to play it we'd hit it out to the right on the land we maybe if we were really good we might be able to hit a second shot on or close to the green that would have to be a good one but most of us would be hitting our second shot uh, you know, somewhere within 100 yards of the green and then wedging it in. Bryson has been training for holes like this. I mean, he's training with the long drive champions. And this guy is a spectacle. And so he gets up and he has probably the biggest gallery of anybody else there. They're following him. This is very Tiger-esque. And they're following him, waiting for something they've never seen before. And they're encouraging him, and he loves it. So he gets up to this hole. He's checking the one. He's talking to his caddy back and forth. And, you know, he's done this a few days, but he gets to Sunday. And this guy is, I th- I'm not sure if he's tied for or leading the tournament, but he's pretty close. He's on the leaderboard, you know, top three or four at this time. And this guy's been playing aggressive the first five holes. Now he gets to this hole. And everybody's egging him on, egging him on. And he gets up and he hits this drive. And then you have the shot tracer that's kind of showing it so we could all see the direction of the ball, where it's going. And when it hits land on the other side, maybe 20 or 30 yards in front of the green, everybody goes apeshit, including Bryson. And so it was fun to watch. And the announcers, (laughs) the announcers just can't hold back. You know, they got to say things. Nobody's saying anything negative. They're just, they're in awe of, number one, his ability to understand things at the molecular level. Number two is to make adjustments because he understands things and he understands things in motion. And the fact that he's able to, number one, build his body up so that he has the strength to do it. Number two, has the know-how of where to hit it and how to play a draw or a fade. And if you watch him swing the golf club, I mean, nobody's legs do what his, when he's done, his left leg is twisted over to the left and his right leg has to come up off the ground because otherwise it's going to break someplace between the ankle and the knee. But it's fun to watch and everybody likes it and it's the buzz. And those that don't, you know, say that they're, you know, they're traditionalists. You know, this guy is a circus act. And, you know, those same guys who say they're traditionalists maybe a few months ago went to some training center to have their clubs fitted for them because of technology. And so they have all of the new equipment. They're using the new balls with technology. So, you know, traditionalist, smeditionalist. This guy, Bryson, is fun to watch, and I hope he keeps doing it because when Jack came on the scene, 
he was hitting the ball farther. When Tiger came on the scene, John Daly came on the scene. We just have to remember everybody, it's sexy to see somebody get up and just deliver a womp on the ball and have that ball go exactly where they're, where it's heading. And, you know, Bryson also has a good short game. I mean, that last putt he had to make to beat Lee Westwood, who, by the way, 47 years old, to play like that was just incredible. And another thing that I thought had great impact is when Bryson makes the last putt to win the tournament. His emotions just take over him, and he does this Hulk-like flexing move with both of his hands down and his fists clenched, and then he raises his fists up in the air. Man, I thought that was, again, remember the first time you saw Tiger Woods do his fist pump? I think he was an amateur, and it might have been at the TPC down in Sawgrass. But um, to watch that, and then you expect that when Tiger did great things, he does that fist pump, the crowds go wild. Well, now Bryson has this new Hulk move. You know, I think I think that's going to go a long way. So, yeah, everybody was talking about that. Before I get to the last topic, I thought I'd share a story from yesterday, Friday, March 26th. As we get into springtime, there are more bachelor and wedding parties at the golf course. It's great for the cash register, good for the Bev cart girls, not so good for the tee sheet of golfers that are following them. Because typically when they start coming out on the course, it becomes like a five, five and a half hour round just because they're always stopping the Bevcart girl and, you know, they're having a great time. And what do they care about time? I mean, the guy who's getting married, you know, he's trying to delay as much as he can. So I get the tea sheet for Friday. And typically when I get the tea sheet, I'm going to eyeball it before I go up to the first tee. I want to see, am I familiar with a lot of the golfers, which I typically am. Also, I like to see how many group, big groups do we have. And typically on a Friday, if we have big groups, it's a wedding party. It's a bachelor party. So I see starting off Friday morning, and this is not typical. First thing, 728 in the morning, there's a group of 24. Starting off a list of what seems like a record amount of golfers last Friday. So my first thought is, okay, man, this is definitely a bachelor party. And it's going to be like... Um, two dozen fireball intravenous golfers with the golf course just as an excuse to let loose. So here's the first thing. All 24 guys are on time. Okay, that's a first. Then all 24 golfers know who they're playing with and in which order. That's a second first. They asked me to take a group photo, which is typically part for the course for a lot of these groups. Uh, unless no, everybody's not showing up on time, which is typically what happens with the bachelor parties is they're totally disorganized and guys know they're supposed to show up at the golf course. A bunch of them just can't make the bell because the night before was just, you know, too much of a celebration. And then they get there. They don't know who's playing with who. And that, by the way, that happened maybe an hour or so later on Friday where these groups come and they don't know. And they're figuring it out when they get there. But these guys, 
knew who they were playing with. They knew the game. And then after they take this group picture, the most unusual thing happens. One guy pulls his Bluetooth, it looked like a boombox, pulls it out of the cart, puts it down on the tee box, and starts playing hip-hop music. And I'm thinking, okay, it's 7.30 in the morning. They're playing Dr. Dre. Yeah, they're trying to get psyched up. Or that's what they were playing just a few hours ago while they were still partying. But then all of a sudden, one of the guys in this group, all 24 guys are together after the picture. One guy comes out of the group and he's holding a microphone that has this built-in speaker around the microphone and starts announcing the first of the guys that's going to play in group one. And his announcement starts off like almost any other PGA tournament where they're announcing the players. 55, tee time. These two gentlemen are the only two in the field who have won the tour championship. Winner of 34 PGA tour events, including the 2002 Masters Tournament, the U.S. Open, the Bay Hill Invitational, the Buick Open, the American Express World Golf Championship. All right, all right. We know. <laughs> but after announcing their name, the MC started disrespecting whoever the golfer was with innuendos about some major fuck-up, fault, or failure that the guys had during their four to six years at Mizzou. You know, stuff like, Welcome, Trevor McNamara, and everybody starts clapping, who sired more bents than Secretariat, had the market cornered on Valtrex, and owned shares of every company manufacturing doxicillin. And everybody just started going, oh, the guy gets up. They're all laughing when they say it, too. But there wasn't one golfer that wasn't disrespected about something that they did in college. Or, you know, they say, guy voted most likely to have an affair with a 13-year-old. <laughs> it was funny. So right before the guys are announced, you know, I'm just sitting on the tee box looking at all of these golf carts in a row thinking this could be the slowest round ever. I hope these guys have golf before. So after announcing that guy, Trevor, he gets up. The guys kind of pipe down for a second. This guy hits a 275-yard drive down the pipe with a baby draw. And next guy gets up. Gets announced, everybody's laughing, another personal assassination, pipes it down the fairway like a Freddie Couples power fade, like 280. Conclusion, these guys are not a problem. These guys are players. And then I watched them all go through it. And at the very end, the bachelor, the guy getting married, and was set, who had set it up, looked like he had been on the golf team. I mean, this guy had a pro swing. And to boot, he's wearing this beachcomber wide brim straw hat. Which usually says one of like three things to me. Number one, he's protecting himself from some damage. Number two, he wants to convey a retirement look and he's at the golf course just to chill. Or number three, he's good enough to look casual but has the skills to beat everybody in the group. And I put him in box number three. This guy had a pretty good swing and he looked like he was the player to beat. So my last topic 
is about something that happened uh, with me this past week that I thought was funny, and it caused me to do a little research. So I get these uh, new golf balls, and I mark my golf balls. And over the years, I have had different marks on my golf balls. There was a time where I would put these two or three concentric circles around the number on the golf ball. Um, but that became difficult and it kind of made it look kind of messy. And then there were times where I actually bought these, um, metal stencils and I would stencil on some kind of figure. And I thought that was pretty cool, but it was, it was a lot of work. So right now, all I'm doing is putting a dot on my ball and maybe I'll draw a line just for alignment. So I'm doing that, and my partner, who does not play golf at all, is asking me, what the hell are you doing with your golf balls? And I'm like, well, I'm marking them. And she's like, well, why would you mark your golf ball? So then I've got to kindly you know, take her through why people that play with other people might want to mark their balls. You know, a lot of times people are playing the same branded ball, and they might even be playing the same ball with a number. So you put a special mark on your ball so in case your balls are near each other, you're not sure who sh whose shot is who, you could identify it by the mark. You know, another reason is, let's say you hit a ball that looks like it might be out of bounds and then you have to hit a provisional and it goes in the same direction. You've got to be able to identify which was the provisional and which was the first shot just for scoring purposes. You know, And if you watch the PGA on weekends, you'll notice that Every player has some mark on their ball. Tiger didn't have to because he had all those balls that said Tiger on them. So, And typically his ball used to be yards in front of everybody else's. But he had the Tiger mark on his balls. And everybody else does something a little bit different to personalize their ball. But also players are marking their balls with colors. Because colors signify an emotion and that emotion typically will have an impact on how you hit that golf ball. So while most all players are looking for an edge, what they're finding is there are certain colors that have different energies. And what they're looking for is the color that makes them feel less anxious and more at peace. Color psychology is not new in marketing, branding, or sports. So if you look at the color palette, certain colors convey certain emotions. Red encourages appetite, but it also encourages a sense of urgency. If you look at certain companies like Target, Coca-Cola, Kellogg's, Avis, Nabisco, Dairy Queen, Lay's, Exxon, Texaco, Heinz, Nabisco, and McDonald's. They all have red lettering or a big red uh, as part of their logo. Starbucks uses green to promote a sense of relaxation. You know, until you down one of their triple espressos, then it conveys a whole different emotion. And orange, you know, conveys enthusiasm, cheerfulness, warmth. Um, if you look at Fanta, you know, um, Hooters, <laughs> I had to add that. You know, it adds cheer, yellow, optimism, clarity, warmth. So companies like Best Buy, Hertz, Ferrari, 
Subway, UPS, and Denny's all are trying to convey that same thing. You know, they want you to come in hungry, feel clean and warm about the triple play that you're about to down. And with professional golfers and how they choose the colors of their apparel, it's no secret and it's not by accident. Phil Mickelson and Gary Player wore black, not because it was thinning, but because it made them feel aggressive, like assassins. Tiger wore red and black, not by accident. That made him feel aggressive. So the next time you're, you're about to mark your ball or you think about what you're going to wear for the day, consult the color wheel and see if that has any impact on how you play. If it does, you're welcome. But then again, if you're like me, you'll go in your closet and pick colors that you think don't clash or at least clothes that you think are clean. Now, my dad used to come downstairs. He'd be wearing like green pants, a red shirt, and like orange socks. He was totally colorblind. And again, the question I always ask is, how did he get those socks? Regardless of, you know, there had to be a salesperson in there. You know, and I couldn't depend on my mom because my dad was probably up before her, put on his stuff, probably dressed in the dark, and went out and played. And none of his buddies would give him crap for it. <laughs> But that's why he has boys. You've been listening to Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, recording from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.